Okay, so now looky here. We're going to start um, because, of course, um, when Bill and Louise were here today, I said, well, you know, we're only doing it for two more weeks. He goes, why? I said, the rapture. I'm not doing it after the rapture. <laughs> and they're messianic, so they don't buy the whole rapture thing. But Okay, so do you remember what month it is? Yes, thank you. And Elul is the month that you spend 30 days of Elul contemplating your relationship with the Lord. Because 30 days later is Rosh Hashanah, New Beginnings, Festival of Trumps. And then 10 days to Yom Kippur, or, uh, yeah, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. So if you were Jewish before the Messiah had arrived, you needed to make sure you were square with God before atonement or you wouldn't be written in the book of life for that year. And if you passed that year when you weren't written in, it's a bad thing. So you spent those 40 days seriously contemplating uh, your relationship with the Lord. And, you know, 21st century American Christians look at that, oh, that's so stupid. But is it? I mean, shouldn't we, we, we're typically saved and that's it. We don't ever think about it again right? We don't need to contemplate because once saved, always saved. And I'm thinking, you know, it's a good time to contemplate the Lord. And that's this month. So today is the 15th of Elul. So that would mean there's a full moon tonight, which is that true? Okay. Okay. Well, whatever. It's right around there. Corn moon. I don't know. <laughs> I can't keep track of all the colors and stuff. So anyway, we should do that. We should, we should, you know, I mean, we should every year. We should constantly consider our relationship with the Lord, but particularly this year, because this year, I mean, if, what if this Rosh Hashanah really is the rapture? What if in 14 days we're gone? What if he comes or he takes us or takes those that are ready and you didn't go because I mean, you had the whole month to contemplate your relationship with him. And I don't know, I, I always thought it was you go through all of the Jewish um, things that the Jews had to do. And I think counted up once, it's like 196 days out of 360 days. There's something that you need to do to consider your relationship with the Lord. And then there's this whole month. Then there's the 10 last days, if you couldn't get it right in the 30 days before atonement. And if you miss it at atonement, it's like missing the rapture. So you're the 15th of a low. You have 15 more days. So what if this Rosh Hashanah really is the rapture? If you knew for sure that in 14 or 15 days you would be raptured, would you live your life differently? And I suspect you would. You know, but we should live, I mean, we should live like that all the time. And we've spent the last what, month or so talking about different end time scenarios and stuff. And the thing about the pre-trib outlook is you're not waiting for anything else to happen. We're waiting for the rapture, waiting for the Lord to take us and meet him in the air. So you should live, we should live every day like tomorrow could be the rapture. And when you're talking about mid-trib or post-trib or amillennialism, preterism or any of that stuff, 
there's all these things that have to happen. So you've always, you always have time, right? You know, you're looking for the beast or you're looking for the mark or you're looking for whatever it is. Or if you're amillennialist or preterist, it's all uh, allegorical. And you're looking, you know, you're never looking to meet the Lord in the air, maybe tomorrow. And so as we head uh, towards Rosh Hashanah in 14 days, and I've covered this in some of the emails and stuff, but remember Rosh, every, every feast, the things that are predictive happen on the day of the feast, right? The Feast of Unleavened Bread, when the uh, Jews were out selecting their spotless lamb for the sacrifice, Yeshua rides in to Jerusalem on a donkey, the, the, the day of Passover, He's crucified. The day of first fruits, he rises from the grave. The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls. The law was given. Church began. The Jewish nation began. So you've got the three fall feasts. And they're, uh, that's why you're supposed to build a booth out and back to live in for those last uh, eight or nine days to remind you that this place is not our home that we live somewhere else. So these last three feasts are predictive of the, th the things that are going to happen at the end of time. And of course, the Feast of Tabernacles, the one where you actually have the booth, Sukkot, um, Zechariah says in chapter 14 that all of the nations throughout the thousand years will have to come to Jerusalem and celebrate that feast only. And if they don't, the Lord is going to shut up the rain and do all sorts of things and they'll regret not uh, doing that. So that feast is obviously predictive of our home going, of, you know, the new Jerusalem and, and the actual time when we go, because it's after the thousand years. So that leaves two, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is a day of atonement. So you can make a, a pretty good guess that that might be the, the day that Yeshua returns, whenever that's going to be. So that leaves you with Rosh Hashanah. And if Rosh Hashanah, there's only one other end time event to happen, and that would be uh, the Lord taking his church, the rapture. So you can make a reasonable case that the, the rapture is going to happen on Rosh Hashanah. And it, uh, Rosh Hashanah, the other thing it, it's called is the Festival of Trumpets, because you have Rosh Hashanah, and then the next day you have the Festival of Trumpets, and the trumpets are blown a hundred times or more. And then to signify the end of the feast, the end of Rosh Hashanah and the festival of trumpets, the trumpet is, is blasted for one long, low, unusual tone, and it's called? Thank you, because it closes out the festival of trumpets, which is Rosh Hashanah. And then when Rosh Hashanah falls on a Sabbath, it's called in numbers the ultimate Sabbath, or the, yeah, the ultimate Sabbath. Because there's a you know a number of but you can't blow the trumpets on Rosh Hashanah when it's on a Sabbath, so you blow them a hundred times the next day at the festival of trumpets, unless the Sabbath is on this particular day and they call it a Shabbat or something, um, then you can blow the trumpets on the Sabbath on Rosh Hashanah. Well, this Rosh Hashanah is all of those things. And this Rosh Hashanah, uh, the Jews have petitioned to blow the trump, to blow the shofar on the, the mount where the temple is supposed to go, on the temple mount. And that hasn't happened in 1950 years. 
And then you, you look at all the stuff we've been talking about, you know, that the end is clearly coming. Um, you know, you've got the mark and the vaccines and all of the violence and hearts are turning cold like crazy. And, you know, I mean, all the stuff we've talked about since March are happening. And you can make a pretty reasonable case that this Rosh Hashanah could be the one. Or if not this one, then in 2023, the Sabbath and all of these things happen again, except for the trumpet deal. You know, this has never happened before. If the Jews actually are able to blow the shofar on the Temple Mount, that will be um, that would be remarkable. So I'm hopeful <laughs> that Saturday, you know, the day after Rosh Hashanah, could be the day that he calls to meet us in the air. And, you know, that, that sounds crazy, I know. And people who have considered this, seriously consider it. And then you come to the belief that, gosh, this, this, really, this really could be the deal. You know, and one of my friends, I think, expressed it the best. He said, this is just surreal because we've thought about this for 30 years. You know, we were, I was saved in Santa Barbara at Pebble Hill with a bunch of guys. And at that time, we all talked about the end times and the raptures coming and, you know, and all that stuff. And of course, it's been 30, 35 years, whatever it's been. And I don't know if all churches were rapture minded back then or if it was just this particular church or what. But now all of a sudden, it's possible. It's actually possible. You can make a, you can make a really good case. You make a perfect circumstantial case and, and convict the guy on this, that this could be the one. And if it is the one, how are you going to live? Really? Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, yeah, there's all these things. And when you look, um, I was listening to a guy and I haven't actually checked this out yet, but um, there are all these books that we don't, and by we, I mean like 21st century American Christian, don't read. And I, I do because, you know, I, I like to know what the Hebrews were thinking and what the culture of the time and stuff. And there's a book called the book of Enoch and the book of Jasher and uh, the book of Jubilees. And there's all of these um, that are referenced in scripture. It's not like they're unheard of or, you know, whacked out books. I mean, Enoch, you know, everybody knows who Enoch is. And um, well, in the, in the book of Enoch, he lays the whole case out that this, uh, and Enoch's the guy who would know, because remember he was, he walked with God and then he wasn't, he was taken. He was raptured, right? So he makes the case that this rapture for the church is going to happen at Rosh Hashanah. And there's a, you know, there, there have been a number of uh, things in scripture. And well, did you all see that star Bethlehem? You remember that one, that lawyer and he's doing all, okay, well, it's the same thing. He's saying the same thing that, you know, it could be on Rosh Hashanah and all, you know, and he's looking at it from an astronomical point of view and all that stuff. So it's not a whacked out idea. It's been around since Enoch was seventh from Adam. So you do the math. That was some, some time ago, but, but that's the question. If that's, 
you know, if that's really possible, what does that mean? How do you live your life? You know, and we, we don't even know. We don't even know the answer to that because we just go about our daily deal. And, you know, I talk to people, I mean, I see six, eight people every day and I talk to almost every one of them. And, you know, some, sometimes people are interested and sometimes it's like, you know, and most of those are Christians. You know, I've talked, I can't tell you how many pastors and I don't know if any of you read that thing, that 22 page thing I sent you. Um, you know, and some of these pastors are right. And it's going, look, dude, you're, you know, that's, it's, that's not the deal. This isn't the, this isn't the mark. It's just a vaccine. And, you know, we'll wear our masks and close our churches down and, you know, it's fine. It'll be good. Like maybe, I mean, I'm not above saying I could get this totally wrong, but I don't know. Um, so anyway, we've been talking about the main uh, end times positions over the last month or so. And I wanted to uh, recap those a little bit. They all have one thing in common as you do any sort of research at all into, um, we, we looked at uh, mid-trib, post-trib, amillennial, preterist. Anyway, all of them, all of them will say something like, this is the only biblical position there is. This is, they usually use the phrase sound biblical doctrine. You know, and every single person in any of these camps honestly believes and uses texts out of scripture to prove that this is the only possible way the end times could go. And it's just interesting that uh, they all use the same verbs. You know, it's typically, this is, this is a sound biblical position. Um, and obviously, four or five of them are going to be wrong. <laughs> and uh, I haven't received any giant message from the Lord on this or anything. So I'm, I can just tell you what I believe. And uh, we'll see how it plays out. Because I've always said I'm, I'm a pre-trib guy. I believe uh, in the pre-trib rapture. And we'll talk about this tonight and probably tomorrow night. Um, but if it works out that that's not true, I will quickly move to being a mid-tripper. And if that doesn't work, I'll move to being a post-tripper. And if that doesn't work, we'll just assume that there is no tribulation and I'll become an amillennialist or whatever. But in, you know, up until, if we're not gone by, say, this time in 2023, then I may move to being a mid-tripper. But I'm guessing we will be gone. <laughs> um, so I've looked at, a lot of these positions for, you know, for a number of years. And I, I personally, for me, I can't get past the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. It seems to make sense to me. So I probably wasn't the, uh, the best guy to present the other positions. But uh, when we've looked at them, some of them, well, I mean, they all have some compelling things to say and they use some compelling verses and whatnot. I mean, obviously, because these are not unintelligent people that have, that have come to these positions, but I've noticed that one of the similarities that um, a lot of these uh, other positions have is they, they tend to make their position from the English in the Bible. And that's not necessarily you know, it wasn't written in English. It wasn't written by English speakers. It was written in Hebrew or some, some perhaps in Greek or Aramaic. 
but it was written by Hebrews and from a Hebrew culture and a Hebrew mindset and all that stuff. And when you start trying to make your, uh, your case based on what it says in the English, especially if you're reading uh, like, like my uh, mid-trib guy, he, he, the whole case is made reading the English standard version, which I have for 30 years called the shuck and jive version. Cause it's, you know, I mean, it's easy to read and understand, but you can't do any research on it because none of the words that they use are in any sort of, you know, you, you're just stuck with listening to what it says in English and then you make your case about that. Uh, and most of these, well, all of these other positions don't uh, factor in this idea of typology or types or, uh, you know, because I see these pictures in scripture that to me are very important. And I think they were important to the Jews, because that's how, uh, if you believe that the Lord from Genesis 1-1, you know, built this house, like we talked about, and wants to fill it with his family, with his son and his wife and his his grandchildren, I guess would be a way to phrase that. Um, then as we understand it, the first book that was ever written, I mean, actually written down, was the book of Job. And that would have been several thousand years later. So how did you communicate these truths from the creation over the course of, you know, 1400 years, we got to the flood, and then another 600 years after the flood, how did all those truths uh, remain truthful? And, and obviously, it was, it was word of mouth, but it's not like the telephone game. The Lord uh, drew pictures that we, we would all know, harvesting, planting, families, sex, children, food, house, you know, everything that anybody in any culture would be familiar with, except of course, 21st century Americans, who mostly for the most part, never planted anything in their lives. So they don't get that part. But he's, he drew on these pictures that everybody would know. And the lessons came from that. And he put it up in the Matzeroth and the stars so that there was, and if you've looked at those, you know, you look at the Virgo, well, that doesn't look anything like a virgin or Leo the lion. You know, there's, there's no, it doesn't look like a lion. How do you get a lion out of that? Well, that was never, it didn't matter. You know, all it was was, look, do you see that constellation? And we're calling that, this because I want to tell the story. You know, I want to tell you the story that uh, I want to share with you from creation to salvation. So that message that the Lord gave was able to go forward and over thousands of years, basically unchanged until Moses was the first guy who wrote the first five books of scripture based on what the Lord had told him. So it was up until the time of Moses, most of these books had never been written down. And even when he wrote them down, he wrote them down in a book. He had a book and that book was in the tabernacle. And the only people who could ever see that book were the priests until they crossed the river Jericho. And then they had to inscribe it on the limestone of big rock. So now there's two copies for the entire world. And it's, so it was thousands of years before people actually had a copy of scripture. So over all this course of time, these ideas were communicated basically through pictures and through understandings of, you know, how things grow and trees and limbs and branches and all of those things have meanings to a Jew. So I look at those pictures to me seem important because I recognize, or hopefully, 
that the Lord laid these pictures out for us to understand things far beyond the words or the story or the account that we're reading. So uh, that's typically why I have chosen, I guess, to follow the the pre-trib thing, because to me, all the pictures say that. And we'll, we'll get to that. I don't know if we'll get to it tonight. You guys know most of them anyway. Um, so we looked at um, the post-trib, which means the rapture doesn't come until the end of the book of Revelation. And we have to go, the whole church, Jews, everybody is sort of lumped together in one group called the elect or chosen people or, or however you want to phrase it. But it's sort of one group. Most of these positions don't see two groups. They don't see Israel and Judah. They see just the elect of God. Um, so the post-trib says we have to go through all of this stuff in the book of Revelation. And then at the very end, we'll be snatched up, meet the Lord in the air, and then he'll come down with us as his second return. And that will set off the thousand years and we'll rule and reign with him then. And basically, uh, Matthew 24, starting in 29, it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, and of course the tribulation of those days would be what we read about in the book of Revelation from chapter four to uh, 18 or so. After, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. And then he shall see all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So they make a case basically built on that in verses like that, that this rapture happens at the end of time. So they're called post-tribulationists. Um, the mid-trib, or they call pre-wrath, um, believes will be taken near the middle of the seven years, but before the beast uh, is identified and declares himself to be God. And there's a, a thing that's not actually on my computer that sort of describes their position. Um, and they see the first three and a half years in, in the book of... Matthew chapter 24, it, it describes, because remember the disciples ask uh, Yeshua, what will be the sign of, of these things, of the temple being destroyed and all that? What will be the sign of your coming? And he begins to describe those things we're all familiar with. And, it's, and he says, this is the beginning of sorrows. So if you're a mid-tribber, you think the beginning of sorrows are these things that maybe we're going through now, that the earthquakes and the pestilence and uh, the martyrdom and, you know, and, and the stuff that's been happening for a long time, uh, maybe will be accelerated, but we'll be here for that. And the mid-tribbers think that, uh, which is not insane, that, that we are living or will be living in the, in the first uh, six seals of the book of Revelation. And that's the first, the four, you know, the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse and so the pale horse brings, um, you know, disease and the white horse brings death and Hades and the red horse brings war and all that stuff. And you can look around the world today and think, huh, 
Well, that fits nicely. So these guys have made a case for that. And, you know, and again, it's, it's entirely possible because you see the, uh, especially now with uh, COVID and, you know, and all this, and I can't wait for the next one. It's going to be pretty intense. But you see all this pestilence and the disease and the vaccines and, uh, you know, you see the white horse and he comes to conquer and you see the pale horse and he comes with disease and you see the red horse and he comes with war. And, you know, look around the world. I mean, that's the world is falling apart. So you can make a pretty good case or a reasonable case anyway that that's possible. I mean, we looked at a bunch of things that I don't necessarily buy into, but uh, it's a reasonable case. And there are people that believe that and I see why they believe it. Um, it it's called a pre-wrath position because they believe we'll be raptured before the major wrath, the tribulation of of Revelation. We'll be here for the first part of it. That's not that bad. But it's interesting, this word wrath, both in Hebrew and Greek, and in Hebrew and Greek combined, there are almost a dozen different words that are translated as wrath in English. But every one of them uh, is, is the word for desire or passion or violent passion or words to that effect. And when we think of wrath, we don't immediately think of desire and passion right? And it's the, the perpetrator of this wrath is so passionate for what he believes, it's, it's, it becomes almost wrathful, violent. But that's, that's what it says in every case in Hebrew and in Greek and in all 12 of these words. And the word tribulation, again, in both Hebrew and Greek, um, means pressure or pressurized or squeezed or uh, crushed. You know, so when we, when we read the words wrath and tribulation, we might think of them as sort of the same thing, and they're not. The word wrath is almost always used in, in terms of God's wrath. God is so passionate about his people being saved and so passionate about his the enemies who are trying to uh, kill his people or dissuade his people, that that becomes what we say in English is wrath. He is just, his desire and his passion is for his people. And he will do anything to defend his people. And he will do anything to crush the enemies of his people. And that, to me, that uh, laid out a little different picture maybe of, of what's going on. And when you read the word tribulation, it's typically tribulation is used. Well, not typically, maybe half the time tribulation is, is used sort of in the picture of the book of revelation. The things that happen at the end are defined as tribulation. And that uh, is this, this pressure, this squeezing. If you remember when the uh, uh, children were led out of Egypt, right? And, and the Lord told Moshe to take the people the wrong way to take them this other way, instead of just shooting straight across for where he's going. Remember, and he took them to this uh, mouth of the gorges, which is at the foot of the Red Sea. So he, it's this place of, and that's what it means in Hebrew is to be squeezed because he had all these 3 million people trapped in the, it's sheer rocks on both sides and the Red Sea at the end. 
and the Egyptian army's coming down there and they were squeezed and they could see no way out of this. And that's kind of the picture of the word tribulation is these things that are happening are going to be happening to put pressure on, to squeeze, to crush the people that are left in order that they may see that he is the Lord because he will do something just like he did with Moshe. I mean, he'll, he parted the Red Sea. Who would have written that? You know, that's just insane, right? But he did it because he, of course, wanted to keep his people safe because his passion and desire is for his people. But more than that, he did it because he wanted to eliminate the enemy. So if he could get the enemy all in one place because they thought that Moshe had made a huge mistake and brought these people to this place of certain doom, and then the Lord intervenes in the most magnificent way, and he, he both saves his people and eliminates the enemy. So you see both the wrath, that is the passion and the desire of the Lord for his people, and the tribulation where he just squeezed and eliminated the enemies. He eliminated the entire Egyptian army in one fell swoop. He didn't have to go out in the desert and, you know, kill them chariot at a time with hailstones or whatever. He got them all in one place and did it all at one time because that's the way he works. So then we looked at the amillennialist position and, <coughs> excuse me, their position is that uh, everything pretty much since the crucifixion is all allegorical, that there is no set time frame, that there's no, uh, you know, these things aren't literal. You're, you're not going to see the, and they're certainly not in order. You're not going to see the, 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 the seals and the, bowls and the, uh, all the stuff in the book of Revelation, you're not going to see that literally happening. It's just, a, it's an allegorical picture and you're not going to see um, the church raptured away. That's, that's just a picture and you're not going to see the Lord physically come back. That's, that's just a picture of what's going to happen. And there's no set time frame to it. And when you look at uh, the history of history, since the time of Jesus, you know, people who followed him have been persecuted and dipped in tar and lit on fire to light the circus for the Caesar. And they've been burned at the stake and sawed in half and, you know, crucified upside down. There has been martyrdom and, you know, bad stuff that's been happening from the beginning. And you can cite pestilence and disease and death and war and you know this stuff has been going on from the beginning so their position is that these are not specific to the end of time specific to the book of revelation that they've always been happening and that's a you know <laughs> pretty legitimate position you can't really argue about that and they say that since it's all been going from the beginning of uh, or at least the beginning of the messiah that they divide the book of Revelation into seven, and this is, I find interesting, into seven sections. And in each section, they see the crucifixion of Yeshua and the resurrection or the, the rapture or the taking away of the church or so, something. They see that seven times. And they think that's important because after allegorizing everything in scripture, all of a sudden now this idea of seven becomes important and seven is real. 
it's complete and it's perfect. So of course this happens seven times and there's seven churches and all this stuff. So they make a, a reasonable case that that's what they're seeing. And then you've got the, uh, the preterists that teach all of the prophecy in the book of revelation, of course, is, is allegorical, but more than that, it was fulfilled in 70 AD when the temple was overthrown and the Romans came in and, and then, and they feel all prophecy has already been uh, completed. And so they're just waiting. So we've been for 2000 years, just waiting for the Lord to finish up with us. Um, and that's probably, I don't know, the most difficult position. Most of the preterists are Calvinists and I don't, uh, you know, Calvinism, if you're familiar with it, it's irresistible grace. Um, it's God's sovereignty. The God is completely 100% sovereign and that we don't have anything to do with it. And if he calls us to be saved, we're going to be saved. That's all there's to it. If we want to be saved, then we're not called. We're not going to be saved. So it's this whole, you know, irresistible grace thing, they call it. And there's no free will at all. It's all God. And that's, you know, that's not... <laughs> I don't necessarily disagree because it is all God. But scripture also shows, I mean, to me, that God offers this to everybody. But if you don't accept it, it's just a wasted offer. So there's there, your part as well. So a Calvinist doesn't believe you have a part. They believe it's all God and he's sovereign. And they tend to believe uh, in, a, in a preterist end times. And one of the things they quote is Matthew 24, 34. And it says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And of course, Yeshua is telling that to the disciples. So they're, you know, doing the math, 40-year generation. Okay, you say, okay. So they equate this with 70 AD, right? If the temple, he, he was talking specifically to those people and saying that generation. I mean, thinking, and again, he's, they're reading this in English. That generation, everything has to happen before that generation is gone. And that's not really what the Bible says. That word generation um, certainly can mean, a, it means a revolution of time. So it can mean a generation, like we think of a generation, you know, from father to son, but it can also mean a nation or a, a group or things like that. So I believe that the Lord was telling the disciples that this nation, Israel, will never pass away until these things were fulfilled. And of course the nation did pass away for 1900 years. And then no, it's, it's not happened to any other nation ever in the history of history, as far as anybody knows, where they ceased to be a nation. And then after a significant amount of time became a nation again, you know, but, but that was prophesied in uh, Zechariah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all these guys, they, they all said that. And as, you're, as the Jews were reading this, it didn't really make any sense to them because they were Jews. This was their nation. What, what could happen to it? And then, of course, it, the Lord scattered them. You know, they didn't lose it. Well, they did lose it, but they lost it because of their unbelief, because of their lack of faith, and they weren't doing the things the Lord would have them to do. So they didn't need a temple anymore because they weren't doing those things. So the Lord took it away, and they didn't need a nation anymore. So the Lord took it away. But he said, I'm going to call you back. And that's 
pretty clear in Hosea and Ezekiel. And, you know, and that's the whole purpose of the three kids in Hosea. You know, I said, in that place, I called you not my people. I will call you again, my people. And that place, of course, was Jezreel. It was, it was Jerusalem, it was Israel. In that place, he's going to call them back. And that's pretty much what happened. Okay, so the pre-trib thing is kind of a different animal. Um, you know, and again, if we find in the next couple of years we're still here, then I'm probably moving to mid-trip because I would think we've missed the pre-tribulation rapture. But the, the, to believe in a pre-trib rapture, there are, of course, verses. And it's funny, I mentioned this to you guys previously. As I'm studying all these different positions, they all use the same verses. And they said, this proves my position. Well, that's what the other guy said. And that, that's what this guy says. It doesn't you know, it just depends on how you read it and what you think, I guess. But uh, the preacher position certainly uses all of those same verses that mid-trib and post-trib does and, and other stuff. And they stick to the seven too, because the history of mankind, we have 7,000 years. And the Bible is reasonably clear there's 7,000 years. So there's 6,000 years of man and there's a thousand years of God, which gives you 7,000, and then it's all done. So whoever's with God goes to this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and earth, and the old one gets uh, rolled away and torched like a scroll, it says. But it's always seven. So seven, of course, is the number of perfection or completion. It's the number that most identifies God. And six is the number that most identifies man. So when you have 6,000 years, well, obviously that's about man. I mean, just the numerology of, of, you know, the Hebrew numbers would tell you that the 6,000 years are talking about man. And then the extra thousand years, making it 7,000 years is talking about what God or what God is going to do with man. So from, from, for me, from the very get-go, you've got that whole idea of uh, 6,000, God comes back, 1,000 years with him, 7,000, it's all over. And you look at, How's that timing laying out for you? You know, uh, it's been about 6,000 years. And of course, nobody knows. There was not a, uh, you know, the iPhone hadn't been invented yet. So nobody recorded when Yahweh made his plea in Genesis 1.1. But there have been people over, well, you know, the last couple hundred years that have done the math and have counted up the ages and the genealogies and gone through all the genealogies in Matthew and Luke and Mark and Genesis and all that and have come to a calculation of about 4,000 years, 4,006 years until Yeshua. And it's been 2,000 years more or less since. So the 6,000 years seems, you know, I get behind that. It could easily be 6,000 years and God doesn't work in, sort of kind of maybes, you know, it's, if, if it is 6,000 years, it's going to be 6,000 years. And we know that, well, if you're an amillennialist or preterist, you don't know that there's a day. I mean, you know, there is a day, but you don't know what that day is. And it doesn't, there's just no time frame to it. But most of us would believe that there is a day that's been set in stone from probably before the foundations of the earth. That's the last day. 
that's the day. That's all there is to it. It doesn't change. He knows every hair on our head. He knows everything there is to know. He's explained all this to Adam and to Moshe and to um, uh, Abraham and, you know, all these guys. I believe they all knew this story. They all knew it was going to happen. And it's like when he, you know, he, he, he took Moshe to the Mount Pisgah, right? Because he was going to die in Pisgah, but he wanted to go into the promised land, but he couldn't go into the promise. And you remember why he couldn't go into the promised land? Exactly. And what, do you remember what that was? Right. He hit the rock twice instead of hitting it once. Well, he was supposed to speak and hit the rock once, strike the rock once, but he didn't. He struck, struck the rock twice. Well, the reason it was, you know, it doesn't seem like a huge transgression, right? I mean, the people were jerks. He should have smacked them up the side of the head. Doesn't seem like a big deal, except that was a picture. That was a type. Yeshua was crucified once, not twice. He was struck once, not twice. And that was the picture the Lord was trying to give to the people. And Moshe blew it. He, and what did he blow? He blew the picture, the type. And it's that important to the Lord that if he blew the type, he couldn't even go to the promised land. I mean, it was a big deal, right? So I think about types in scripture and types in uh, pre-tribulation and, and maybe I overweight it, but I see the Lord is saying they're a big deal. That's how he shared all that he had to share from, from Genesis 1-1 until Moshe wrote the book. And even after that, he shared it in pictures and types. So it's a big deal. So I see these, um, you know, I, I, I see the 7,000 years as being important. And I see these pictures and types and history um, as being important. And, and, and probably before most of you guys were here, maybe Andrea was here. Um, we've done studies about a tree, right? The, the tree. <laughs> and God is talking directly to me now. So you do the study of the tree and you have, I mean, think about what a tree is. It's got roots and a trunk and branches and leaves and some kind of fruit, you know, pine cone or an apple or whatever it is. And all of those things have meaning. And that's one of the big pictures. The, I mean, how do you get a tree? Well, somebody has to plant a seed or there has to be a seed, you know, and to get the tree, then the trunk grows and the roots grow and all of those things have specific words of course in Hebrew and they mean things and then out of the trunk grows the branches and out of the branches grow the leaves and out of the leaves grow the fruit and what's in the fruit the seed so you can get another tree but it's just like that tree it's not if you get if you get an apple tree it drops apples they're not going to grow an orange tree or a grape bush it's going to grow another apple tree because in all of that stuff is important and all of those pictures. And he's done the same thing with, with family and with sex and with house and bless you and all those things. And they're things that we all understand. So he makes his, his spiritual pictures by sharing a picture that we know. And again, so to me, the pictures are sort of important. Okay. So I want to start by reading first Thessalonians chapter five at the beginning and it says, but of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For you yourselves know perfectly that that day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, 
then sudden destruction come upon them as travail upon a woman with a child and they shall not escape. Um, we, we talked about the peace treaties that have just happened with uh, the UAE and, and they're already talking about Saudi Arabia and um, Jordan and all this stuff. And we've talked about our lives have been anything but peaceful with this COVID, the fake COVID thing. It's destroyed, you know, it's destroyed a lot. And you don't picture that as peace, right? Peace and safety. But they're going to bring us a vaccine that are going to restore our peace and safety. They're going to bring us this uh, peace plan that's going to restore peace and safety to the Middle East. All of these things are coming. And it's, it, and, I, and I don't know, I mean, we'll see if the, well, maybe we won't if we get raptured in two weeks. But you know, we'll see if these things bring peace for a while. And I, I bet they do. I bet they bring a certain amount of peace and people can go back to work and, you know, and all of these things. And there may be some peace in the Middle East. And uh, I don't know, but it's fake if you see it. If, it's, if it really is peace, it's a fake peace. Um, so verse four, he says, but ye brethren, you are not in darkness that day should overtake you as a thief. So remember what we just talked about. Um, you know, that you know perfectly that the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. And I get that quoted all the time when I say something as stupid as like, gosh, the rapture might be coming. Oh, you don't know. You know, I can't know the day. That's anti-biblical. You know, that's not right. He says, brethren, you are not in the darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. So the thief is going to overtake the people who don't know the people who do know are in the, in the light, in the daylight. They're not in the darkness. You are children of the light, children of the day. You are not of the dark or the night, or the night or the darkness. Uh, therefore, let us not sleep and, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. And that's what I ask you at the beginning. If, if, if the rapture really is going to happen, and I mean, I feel like an idiot even saying this, but if it really is going to happen in 14 days, Shouldn't that change the way you act every day? Shouldn't that change what you do and how you interact and the things that you say? I mean, we should be excited about this. But most, and I've talked to half of the more, maybe, maybe nine or 10 pastors in the last month or two. And I mean, these aren't just denominational quacks. These are open Bible guys. I mean, people you would know and Calvary guys from all over the country. And they're just not into it. They're not, they're not talking about it. They're, oh no, we don't want to offend anybody. We want to scare anybody. It's like, well, what do you believe? Well, I don't, I don't you know, it's, I don't, uh, yeah, you know, they can't even identify it. And I was talking to one, his daughter's a cop and he's doing stuff in school. He's been for 20 years. He's been trying to get into the public schools where he lives to teach wrestling and, you know, just anything to interact with the kids, right? And they don't let him because he's the pastor. Well, all of a sudden they let him. And so this year he's going to be in school and his daughter's a cop and, you know, all stuff. And it's like, well, dude, what are you going to do? What's your daughter going to do when they come to her and say, you have to take this vaccine or you can't be a cop anymore? When they say to you, you can't come into this school and teach unless you take the vaccine. He, his church is in a school, you know, his Sunday church is in a public school. This is, 
what, what are you going to do when they say you can't do it here unless you take the vaccine and the people who come can't come unless they have the vaccine? What are you going to do? Oh, it's not going to happen. Really? So you're not even thinking about it? I mean, shouldn't you at least be thinking about it? Shouldn't you at least have a response? You know, and, I, it, and, and on the other side of the coin, there's a lot of people that aren't pastors that have been thinking about it and they know exactly what they're going to do. It's like, forget it. I'm not taking it. If, if you want to fire me, fire me. You know, God's provided for me all my life to this day. What am I thinking? He's not going to provide for me anymore. I don't need your job. I got the Lord, right? But it's just weird to see pastors and I'm not sure why. I mean, of all the people, you would think that they would be the, the most concerned, the most on top of it, the most with a plan. You know, what's going to happen when they kick me out of the church because I didn't take a vaccine? Well, you know, so, the, and I mentioned this last week, there's 2,700 evangelical churches that have now said, we're promoting the vaccine. We're going to tell our congregations to take the vaccine. It's like, what? what? How is this even possible? And so you read about the light and the dark and his people are in the light. They, they, I think they know these things. I think they're standing uh, against them and they see, you know, I had a discussion with one of these guys about the mask. You know, I see the mask is, I don't care about the mask, but I'm not going to wear a mask because it's a sign of, submission and you know it's always been a sign of oppression and submission and to me the mask is because you know i get the oh well you know you have to obey the authorities and obey the government it's like really like the three children in daniel did like peter and john did you know there's a number of examples in scripture where they just crossed the line and i can't do that anymore you know because it means something so that the, the no yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Oh, please keep your children away from the speedway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there are a number of churches, John MacArthur's church, which is immense in California. And he's, uh, you know, he's, I love John MacArthur. I have all his books, you know, his whole New Testament commentaries and stuff. Uh, he's, you know, he's a dispensationalist, but he's, he's a Bible student like nobody you've ever met. I mean, and to be in, in staff, I have the test somewhere that you have to pass to be on staff at his church. And I don't know any Christian that can pass it. I mean, you have to know your Bible inside and out. He said, no, not doing it. Not closing my church, not wearing masks, not social distancing. Come and get me. And this is not John MacArthur. You know, he's a button-down, 60-year-old, you know, mega church pastor kind of guy. And so he took Gavin Newsom in Colorado to court, or Colorado, California, and he won. Because it's all illegal. They can't do any of that stuff. No. So they're pulling his lease for the land that he parks cars for the church. 
Yeah, it's, it's endless. You know, the enemy is going to attack every way they can. But every single time a church or a pastor, and there have been a number of them, stand up and say, no, we're not doing it. They win in court every time because what they're doing is completely illegal. And that doesn't mean they're not going to stop coming after them. But it's just interesting that all these churches are folding. They're just, oh, yeah, we'll shut down. You know, oh, it's for the good of grandma. Well, it's not for the good of grandma. If any of you read that thing I wrote to the bottom, this is complete. I mean, it's, it's just a farce. None of this is true. It's the only purpose for any of it is the vaccine. And if that's, the, which is illegal in itself, because the federal law says the government cannot develop a vaccine if there's an effective and available cure. Well, I can give you four that work in 48 hours. You know, it's easy to fix this for 12 bucks. So they're breaking the law even by doing the vaccine. So what's the point of the vaccine? You know, there's obviously, it has nothing to do with healthcare. It's something bigger. And that's why I think the mask is like the golden image on the plane of uh, Dura that Nebuchadnezzar was erecting. And the kids said, no, I just can't do that. I mean, I'll, you know, I'm, I'll be a good citizen. I've been a good citizen. I've helped you every way I can, but I cannot do this. You know, I cannot worship that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, like anybody's died by accident. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, it all goes back to do you trust the Lord or not? And it it's shocking to find 2,700 evangel evangelical churches and church groups. I mean, some of these are, you know, like the, the National uh, Hispanic Church Council. Well, how many churches are in that? So all of those churches, the pastors are recommending, oh, yeah, take the vaccine. Yeah, it'll be fine. What could happen? You know, and then they'll let us open again. It's like, oh, come on. Are you guys not getting this? And apparently they're not. So let me, let me, let me go on here. Um, okay, here we go. Um, and this, I've been trying to write this for two weeks, and I haven't got it out, so I'm just going to say some of it now. Uh, we have... In the Bible, you've heard about this guy, God. Uh, there are prophets, there are priests, there are watchmen, and there's Issachar, the tribe of Issachar. Okay, so you think about all of those stuff, all those things. Um, you know who God is, right? He, 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 he has given us guidelines to live by and things that he would like us to do and things that he would like us to avoid. And he wants us to live a certain way and preferably think a certain way and act a certain way. And most people don't. Most Christians don't. They do what they want to do. Most of us, that's the way people are. We just do what we want to do. And if we're Christian, we'll slap a, you know, a Christian bumper sticker on it and say, yeah, we're, we're good. Even though we're not doing the things that he asked. Okay. So then he sends prophets, right? And the prophets, uh, he tells them what to say. And, and you know what a biblical prophet is, right? It's not somebody who's telling the future. It's a guy who's who's saying the words of God. That's a prophet. So he says, tell the people this. These are the things that I told them. Tell the people this. Nobody buys it. All of the, almost every prophet to a man at some point says, am I the only one left? And God has to say, no, no, I, just, I keep 7,000 that haven't been of me. You know, you're not, but you feel like you're the only one because nobody agrees. And then you've got the watchmen. Right? So the watchman's on the wall and he's supposed to watch. 
and he's watching for bad things to come. And if he sees something bad coming, he doesn't wait until it gets close enough to determine if it's friend or foe. He makes an announcement and says to everybody in the city, everybody who can hear, hey, there's something coming. You guys need to be aware. And there are chapters and chapters and chapters in Isaiah 33 and chapters 3. And uh, in, in a lot of places, you read about the watchman. And they make a big deal about if the watchman sees something and doesn't say anything, and the city's attacked, then the blood of all the people are on his hand. But if he does say something and the people ignore him, then the blood is on their own hands. You know, okay, that's a great message. Well, think about what that says, is most of the people aren't going to believe the watchman. So then you've got uh, Issachar, the tribe of Issachar. Remember, those were the men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Well, Israel was one, or Issachar was one of the few tribes that actually enlarged and prospered through this whole wilderness wandering thing uh, because of this. They were more focused on uh, to be men of the times, to know what was going on and what Israel had to do. So they, they didn't, their ranks were not decimated. So by the time you got into the promised land and everybody got their properties and you see the big map of who got what and who's, who lives where, there's this little dot in the middle and that's Itzikar. They hardly have any land because there's only 60,000 of them. So they make up like 8% of the population of Israel. But those are the people who had understanding of the times and knew what Israel ought to do. So you look at all of these things and you see this, the same idea that most of the people, I mean, like 90% of most of the people aren't with the program. They're in the dark, but there are a few who are in the light. And what's the purpose of being in the light? to help the people in the dark, right? These are the people of Israel. These are God's people. These are the people that he sent his prophets to. And they're in the dark. And you think, oh my gosh, how can that be? Well, it, it says so. I mean, it tells you that they're in the dark. And it tells you that some of his people will be in the light. And those people that are in the light are in the huge minority I mean, you know, 8% would be a lot. Well, that's the way the Bible has it written. That's on purpose. So that when these things come to pass, that the people who are in the light can say to the people in the dark, whoa, 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 look, look, look at what's happening here. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what's going to happen. So that at the end, those people will be saved or be raptured or be taken away or however you want to look at your eschatology. So sometimes I get all round, wrapped around the axles, wrapped around the axles um, about what's wrong with these people? How come they're getting it? Well, the Bible says that. It's okay. They'll get it when they get it. And they're going to get it because people like you or people who, who are in the light are going to be able to share with them. And they will get to a point like my friend, they're going to get to a point where the, 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 the church or the school says, you can't come in here unless you're vaccinated. And what's he going to do? I've brought it up and he just poo-poos me. Right? I brought it up to a number of pads. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not going to happen. Well, what happens when it happens? Then they're going to think, huh, that guy told me that. When you told him that, you're at a job and said something. Well, that's interesting. I wonder if he was right. And then they're going to start putting things together and they're going to start reading their Bible because we're not talking about non-Christians. We're talking about Christians. 
or people who know the Lord, or Jews, people who should know the Lord, people who should know the Torah, the rules, the regulations, the statutes, the judgments, the, the, the things that contained in the Second Testament. And they're going to say, huh, that's what that means. Well, that's interesting. And so they're, I'm guessing, you know, like I say, God didn't tell me this personally, but I'm guessing just before the rapture, there are going to be millions of people who all of a sudden step out of the relative darkness of just being a cultural Christian or a cultural Jew, step into the light of the Lord and be saved. And they're going to be raptured along with the rest of us. And there will be, you know, in some sense, it's just not fair, right? You know, we spent all our lives doing this and they've been saved for like eight minutes and they get raptured, but it doesn't matter. This has been the plan from the get-go. This is always the story. Okay, so verse seven, it says, for they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, for a, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, it's this idea of wrath is this passion. It's this desire of the Lord, Right? He wants us to be, he wants these people because it says for they, those people, those other ones that sleep in the night, but for us who are of the day. So I'm suggesting there are two groups of people here. And, you know, I'm not suggesting I'm even one of them, but there are people who are in the light who know and there are people in the dark who will be taught, who will be saved, who will certainly come to a knowledge. But they need to have a teacher. They need to have somebody helping them. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we've talked about wrath and tribulation. Move on to verse 10. It says, for they, oh, it's just the same thing. Um, uh-oh. Do I have uh, the, two, the two last verses in there? No, no. Do you have uh, 10 and 11? Does anyone have 10 and 11? All right, you can read that on your own. Okay. Amen. Whether we wake or sleep, whether you're in the light or you're dark, these people are going to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's not as though they're in the dark today and they're going to remain in the dark. There are going to be events that happen that are going to cause them to question. And because people like you perhaps have put a seed in their path or have said, hey, any questions, call me you know, sent you something and maybe all of a sudden now they're reading through it because they never read through it before or whatever, you know, those people will come to the Lord. And we, and we look at what's going on today. This, if, if the 18th, which is Rosh Hashanah, the 19th, which is the Festival of Trumpets, is the rapture, think about this. There are major, major organizations, uh, there's a huge rally that's being, there's two actually in Washington, DC. 
And the first rally starts on the 16th and goes to the 28th. So it's this multi-day um, and millions of people are going to go and they're going to descend on Washington, D.C. And it's a revival, right? I mean, it's going to bring people to the Lord. Well, most of those people don't know that the guy putting this on is Jonathan Kahn, a Messianic Jew. And he's not advertising it as these are the feast days. He's just saying, let's do a rally and let's come together. There's another guy, and I can't remember his name. Same thing, doing this huge rally uh, in north, some, something northeastern somewhere. Um, supposed to be millions of people are going to come. And it's the, same, it's the same days. Well, he's Jewish. <laughs> he knows what these feasts are. He knows what's going on. Now, all of a sudden, Franklin Graham is into it. He's doing it too. He's doing it on when? The 18th. Rosh Hashanah in Washington, D.C. He's bringing millions of people to this revival, right? And these are happening all over the world. There are things like this that are going on all over the world. So in two weeks, there are going to be millions and millions and millions of people who identify as Christians, or in some cases, Jews, who are going to be attending these revivals because they're just sick to death of the things that are going on in the world, and they don't know why. They, they have not yet put it in to a biblical perspective, but they know it's wrong and they know it needs to stop. And he's saying, all of these guys are saying, come, come to these revivals and, you know, people will be saved. And well, it's them that are going to be saved. It's those people that are going that perhaps are in the darkness are totally oblivious. Oh yeah. Oh, the vaccine's great. Oh yeah. Churches should shut down. Yeah, absolutely. We got to save grandma. You know, I mean, all they're good hearted people. I'm not saying that you know, they're evil in any way, shape, or form. They're trying to do the right thing. And they haven't been led properly, I think, by their pastors. They haven't been taught probably ever what the Bible, you know, really means. It's all this social justice and, you know, cotton candy sort of thing, which is fine. Because the time will come when they're going to get this chance to finally make a decision I mean, a real decision that maybe they've never made in their life. And that goes back to where I was starting. This is the month of Elul. This is the time when individually, not as a group, but individually, we're supposed to be taking an assessment of our life with the Lord. And what this is the idea of a Jew. What would happen if the Lord really did come back on atonement and I was found wanting? I don't want that to happen. Well, Christians, we don't do that every year. Jews have the advantage of doing that every year. I'm telling you, this, this is the year. We, if, if you've never done it before, do it this year. You have 15 days. And you know what? We're going to have a little picnic out here, a brunch. We'll be praying. If I can find out, it would be ideal if they would televise this whole shofar blowing from the Temple Mount. I would love to have that live. But if not, you know, we're going to find out as much as we can when that's going to happen. We'll be in prayer. And uh, when we stop praying, so my hope will be in heaven. <laughs> if not, then you know what? We've had a great time and we'll wait until the Lord takes us, you know, takes us church. But all these things are happening. All these things are happening right now. And uh, I don't know. I just find it hard to believe that this isn't the time. Uh, okay. First Thessalonians chapter four, 13 through 18. But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning uh, them which are asleep, that you sorrow, and that means dead, 
that you sorrow not, even as the others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which sleep in Jesus uh, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the way of the word of the Lord, that they which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them that are in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort yourself with these words. Well, that's pretty comforting. But if you're an amillennialist and believe that all this stuff's just going on and you're living in the book of Revelation, how is this comforting? If you're, if you're a post-tribulationist and you're going to have to go through all of the bowls and wrath and seals and judgments of the book of Revelation in order to be saved, you're going to have to overcome that. How is that comforting? To me, I mean, it says right here, he's going to snatch us. That's that... In in uh, Greek, it's harpazo, but in Latin, it's rapturus. You know, that's where we get rapture. He's going to rapture his church out to be with him in the air, and so it shall ever be. How can you say there's no rapture? You know, I I I, I don't I don't get it. Um, and again, this is less a matter of salvation than sanctification. It's it's uh, how how would you live? I mean, do you really believe this is going to happen? And if you do, it should affect everything you say and everything you do and every place you go. You know, I mean, I guess I'm showing a tremendous lack of faith by repairing the, the front walkway, you know, the week before the rapture, right? So the pagans who get the house will at least have some nice front steps. But, yeah, it's, well, it is. There's a, you know, because you got to count the cost, right? And. I'm not going to be the guy who sells everything and gives all my money away and goes up to the mountaintop and sits and waits for the Lord because I don't know. I'm not God. I mean, he hasn't given me any special insight, any insight you guys don't have. But I do think that we should be prepared and we should be looking for it. And that's the sanctification part. So, okay, so we're, you know, big surprise. Got about 10% of this done and it's out of time already. So we'll pick this up next week. We'll talk about some of the pre-trib stuff. And I want to get, uh, I definitely want to get to the pictures because I think when you look at all the pictures, it's, it's undeniable that there is a pre-tribulation rapture because that is what the Bible says from cover to cover in the, in the pictures. So we'll look at that next weekend and then the or next, next Sabbath, sundown. And then the next Sabbath will actually be Rosh Hashanah at sundown. So we'll have 24 hours of Rosh Hashanah. And if I can find out when the, uh, the temple or when the trumpets are going to blow, if they're going to blow, um, I think it would be good to all meet and have a, because <laughs> we're nine hours different. So sundown in Israel is, in Jerusalem is like 11 o'clock in the afternoon here or something. So that's brunch time, right? We can get together and have an early barbecue brunch and, That'd be kind of cool if we all went together. And if not, then we'll be back the next Friday and we'll start something new. <laughs> <laughs>